Hello and welcome to the Sports Chronicle podcast. My name is Dave O'Regan. I'm part of the team here at the Sports Chronicle. And in this episode, Welsh and Lions rugby legend Gareth Thomas talks to Gavin Comiskey, reflecting on the 10 years since he told the world that he was gay, the events that led to his decision to make it public and the impact on his life since then. Gareth Thomas, thanks a million for doing the Sports Chronicle. We appreciate your time. Pleasure. Uh, we know you're here for the Union Cup, uh, so we get, oh, we should get started on that. Like, what's that? Uh, what, what's this kind of a tournament? This kind of thing mean to you when you hear something like this happening? I, I think for me personally, and I think personally, in obviously the way I lived my life um, and the effects that hiding my sexuality had on me and my family, and now being in a time where you know you sat here in front of a camera. Or you're doing a day's press for an LGBT plus inclusive rugby tournament. Personally, it means that we've come such a such a long, long way. But also, there's still a long, a long, long way to go. Um, so in that strand, it means it means so, so much to me. But also in a, in a wider like society kind of point of view, where LGBT plus inclusive is not just about people with their sexuality or their gender. It's about, it's about creating an environment and that environment is created not by LGBT+, essentially, but by straight as well, by people coming to watch and people judging people on abilities and not on sexualities or anything else. And creating an environment which not only promotes a city, promotes a country, promotes a society, it makes people feel like the sporting world is a world that's open to everybody and that's what it should be. And in my time of playing and my time of growing up, the reality is there's no doubt it wasn't. It's not like, well, maybe it was, it wasn't. So I feel that, you know, from two points of view aspects when I look at it as in my personal life and then in just people general, everyday people walking down the street and the society that they want to live in, Sport plays a big, big part in that. So having it come here to Dublin, which is um, a city and a country which, which I would say personally is pretty renowned for its sport, renowned for its passion of its sport, uh, renowned for its passion of its sport of rugby, for sure, then it's a great opportunity um, to showcase not just the sport, not just the environment, but where Irish society is today in a positive light. Yeah, Pride Weekend's pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> Wait, what better weekend, huh? What <laughs> yeah. better weekend? Uh, I, I was actually going to ask this later on in the interview, but I, I think now is a good time. In December 2009, you, you came out and mm. you've documented all these reasons and all yeah. that. But it's 10 years on, and I don't know another player of your profile in this part of the world, sportsman, uh. who has done something similar. Does, is that disappointing to you? Um, I, I guess it's, it's right. So at this point, I'd say... Honest answer is probably yes. Um, but then I look at the positive of it, right? And I look at potentially, you know, I played maybe my small part in, crea- in, cre- in, in creating inclusive teams or being a part for people who struggle with their sexuality to get off a couch or get out of their dark place and go and be a part of an exclusive team. 
So the trouble is with, with a lot of us, when we look at sport, we solely think of high profile, we solely think of professional. But when I look at, when I look at that, I'd like to say yes, you know, I'd love to say I wish they was. But then when I look at non-professional sport and how many inclusive teams have been created in the last 10 years, how far we've come within, with, with thinking of inclusive sports and inclusive teams underneath the professional level, then I'd say that has come on leaps and bounds. Um, but there's a, it's a strange world, the sport, professional sport in bubble that you kind of, you, you live in and society has a big effect for me on professional, professional sport. But within the bubble of professional sport, you keep that societal effect away. And I do feel that we still need that bubble to kind of pop and for professional people to realise, especially within team sports, that the embrace of difference um, within your little bubble actually creates a better place, mm. not, 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 a, not a worse place. So, you know, I'm now on the outside, so I no longer play professional sport. I'm on the outside and it's very hard to get people on the inside of the bubble to want to affect change. Yeah, like th- let, let me put it on, uh, put it kind of a positive slant on it. Um, do you think it's easier, like for example, a straight person doesn't have to declare that they're straight. Right? Yeah. Do you think there's gay people in professional sport now, possibly something to what you've done that don't have to declare it, you know what I mean? Uh, it's probably common knowledge in their, in elite sport and areas. Or it's, that's, do you think that might have happened or do you think we've seen that in, because society has changed, we're in our early 40s. Yeah. You're not, you're still young, but it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's changed. There's such a difference, I think, in towards my attitude as a teenager than probably Owen's attitude as a teenager. Yeah. Do you see that at least? Yeah, do you know, you, you think, you think yes, but then you look at it and you, th- you, f- you feel kind of, so I'd feel still saddened if somebody, you know, I'd, I'd celebrate the fact that somebody, you know, you don't, First, you don't need to tell the world you're gay. It's, it's an irrelevant fact mm. to everybody apart from who you choose to sleep with or potentially your parents or anybody else, right? But the reality is, is that the sad thing is if that was the case, then if somebody not declaring, I'm to declare they're straight, yet that person's straight, he can walk down there and he can walk hand in hand with his girlfriend and nobody would blink an eye. If you had a top flight professional sportsman who was gay but didn't feel the rest of it. It's his right to be able to walk down there and hold hands, yet he wouldn't because we live in a world now with social media. We live in a world where everybody else wants to know everybody's private business. So it's sad then that people can't feel like they're open and that's that cut off, that's that split between the professional bubble and society. People should be allowed to and should be able to without having to declare it. But we do live in a world where if somebody doesn't declare it, then a tabloid newspaper or a journalist is going to want to run that article. And I always say to people, like, the reason I came out wasn't, wasn't to create a story. You know, it was, as well as saving my own life, it was, I want to take control of my own life. So if I choose to get married to a man, I don't want to do it under covers, hoping that nobody gets to know. Not because I don't want to celebrate it, because I don't want anyone to know my sexuality. And when you hide something, there's always still, like, a fear. There's this constant fear. So the thought of somebody being able to be themselves, their team is great. But that person, through maybe no fault of his own, through our fault or the media's fault, is still living in fear. And he shouldn't, he shouldn't have to. Will you talk about that fear a bit? Like, do you think he could have been 
Granted, you captained the Lions and you played 100 times for Wales, but you think you could have been a better player if you didn't carry around that fear for so long? Um, yeah. Yeah, I probably do. Um, purely because, uh, you know, it's like journalism, right? Uh, you might have a set of questions here, but if I give you an answer, your instinct as a journalist is to say, do you know what, I might have this question next, but I'm, 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 I'm on it, I'm listening to him. As a rugby player, you're in the moment. You practice your life for a split second between being good and being great. Now, if in that moment, you're not 100% focused because you're worried about somebody else seeing you as potentially being gay or calling you gay or you're worried about somebody else's opinion on you, which you always do when you, when you live in fear of lighting, right? when you're lighting, then you're never 100% in that moment. So even though I can't categorically say, yes, I would have been better, I would have been in that split second moment a hell of a lot more than I would have been focused 60% this moment or 40% on what somebody might be thinking about me. So to live in that moment constantly, I feel would have made me a better player, like it would have made anybody a better whatever they do. When they live that moment, being, you know, like an authentic, people say they're their authentic self, then yeah, you, you create better moments because you're not worried about anything else. It's funny, um, on my research, I'm actually going to ask some of my questions. <laughs> <laughs> on, on my research, I, uh, I just I was glancing at your Twitter and you, I am Welsh uh, before anything else. Yeah. Well, you just explained that a bit because to some, a lot of people, that might be a bit of a surprise that you're, you're still saying that. Or I know, you, I know you were, your identity was wrapped up with being playing for Wales so much, but yeah. still, that's, explain why that is still kind of a... The way you kind of almost introduce yourself to the well, world. F- first and foremost, like you know, it's kind of it's a bit of a play on words because, um, like I, I was quite happy to say I was gay because I thought that potentially drop all kind of all kind of labels and all kind of tags and what it did, it just added labels and it added tags, which I'm t- I'm totally cool with. But my proudest, the proudest thing that has ever happened to me was being born Welsh. Now, if I said to somebody like to define me or to describe me, then my sexuality would probably be in the top three. My rugby might be in the top three. My dancing on ice might be in the top three. Some really, some really embarrassing things might, might kind of slip in there. But my, my nationality, like the definition of who I am, probably, you know, kind of gets, gets lost. So... When I wanted, what I wanted to do is when people look me up is that they have an understanding of who I am, but I want to tell them straight away, like the definition of me is Welsh. Is that, that why it, Ireland can never win in Cardiff on <laughs> Slam afternoon? Yes, but yeah, because oh. I, I, again, and I feel like I, through a lot of things I've done, I feel like I, I'm very proud to define a nation as well. So I put that in there, not lightly, I put that in there knowing that I'm really, 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 fuck, I swear, fucking lucky, right? To come from a nation and a country that is accepting of, of who I am wholly, accepting of my sexuality, accepting of the way I gave everything for my country, um, and the way that I'm, I'm going to put my country as my definition first, because a lot of what I stand for is what Wales stands for as well. So I'm, and I'm really proud to say that. Like, and I'm really lucky and blessed to be able to say that. 
We're talking about rugby a little bit there, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, I heard your speech last week in DCU in the Helix, and uh, is this kind of a career for you now? It feels like you've got an important path there if you want to go down it. Yeah, no, do you know what, it's definitely one thing it is not, and one thing I will never let it be is a career. Because I understand, you know, why you can have a job that you're really passionate about, um, and you can have a job that you live. But for me, this is talking about diversity and inclusion and fighting for what I class as human rights for people who are, feel like they're diverse and non-inclusive, I can never tag as a job because you know, I, don't, I, don't, I don't go home, close the door, put my bag down and forget about what I stand for and forget about you know, people who are not in a, as blessed a situation as me. So I, when I when I do things like I did last week in, in, in D- DCU? Yeah, DCU. yeah, Dublin City University. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in DCU. I do, it, I do it as somebody who's lived, who's lived our life, you know, who's been very authentic in, in, in times of his life where people thought I had absolutely everything, but the reality is I had absolutely nothing. Um, and to kind of be truthful and honest about certain moments in my life. Um, I don't share with people who feel that it's a job to me. I only share with people who I feel have come into the room potentially thinking one thing or potentially wanting to get something and leaving with what they came for or leaving thinking, you know what, maybe I could play my part in making sure that that person who I just heard talk there's not another person like him who wants to take his life purely because he played sport and was slightly different or thought he was slightly different to everybody else. Therefore, he didn't feel like he could continue. I can do something about that. So, you know, as much as from the outside looking in, that may seem like quite a decent job to some people, never would I describe it as a job. It's what I live for. It's like a, a passion that I take very, very seriously. Fair enough. You've spoken and written about the suicidal, I don't know if it was suicidal thoughts or suicidal attempts or how you phrase it, but you came back from it. Will you, will you tell us how you came back from it? Um, as in which way now? Um, it was like, you. I remember you writing quite eloquently about how being at the edge of a cliff. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of the, one of the worst moments All in your right, life, sorry. Yeah, yeah, and sorry. Like yeah. What made you just come back? Like, you know? Well, do you know what? And this is, this is something that... I, I always say to people as well is that I didn't really ever want to die. I lived in a world that I didn't want to face. So I'm like I'm not a psychologist or anything, but all I know is my own emotions and I all I want to do is close my eyes because every time I open my eyes I've seen a world that would never accept me and I've seen a world that I lived in that was full of fear. Um and the only way I could stop living in that world was close my eyes. Now, if I died, it means I could never see my parents again. I could never see my brothers again. I could never see my friends again. So for me, even though I attempted suicide, there was a, there were, the attempts were all to just close my eyes. So there was a fear of dying, but a want to not open my eyes again. Now, I know I sounds kind of mixed up, but if you speak to a lot of people who have had kind of suicidal tendencies then that's kind of a, that's, that's very much um, a reality. And I think the way I stopped dying 
and the way I stopped wanting to close my eyes was to finally kind of face the truth, face the truth of who I was and tell the people around me the truth of who I was. Now, if I hadn't have been accepted, then there was a realization that, that without a shadow of a doubt, there would have been a permanent of closing eyes after it. But there comes a time where you think, you know, sometimes it's, it's kind of worth the risk because there was this chaos going on around me that I was causing through lies, through not caring about myself. When you don't care about yourself, you don't really care if you get hurt. You know, if you want to die, then if someone says to you, bet you to go and jump in the water down there, you'll do it because, not because you, you're mad or you're crazy, it's because you don't care. It's because you'll be willing to die. You're grappling with alcohol as well. At yeah, and that, the alcohol and like tablets and everything that you, you take, it just, you don't care about your body. You don't care about what the effects of everything. And people on the outside think, oh, that's great, Alfie's mad. Look at him, he drink this, he'll jump in there, he'll do that. It's only because I didn't care about myself. But then what you see is the people who are really close to you who care about you, they feel the pain that you usually feel if you want living in a world that you didn't care about. And then you see, I saw my wife in like turmoil over, over the way I was living my life. I saw my parents in turmoil and the fear of what was going to happen to me and my brothers. And you realise then, do you know what? Like, kind of stop being so selfish. Have a realisation that there's people who care about you even if you don't. And the only way I think to free them and to get them away from the hurt that I was causing them was to tell them the truth. I'd say there's a lot of people who have uh, teenagers, 20s, 30s, whatever, who have a fear going, if I come out, Christ, what'll happen? Will you talk a bit about uh, Scott Johnson's reaction? Yeah. And Nugget's reaction? Yeah. Because I, I think that is, I, that, I think that could be quite powerful. How you yeah. So, you know, it was, we played, we'd played Australia for Wales and John always, Scott Johnson was the coach at the time and I never really feel like I turned up on that day because my mind was elsewhere. I was playing in a stadium of like 70,000 people representing my country and all I could think about was the turmoil I was in, the most selfish state I've ever been in. And John will come up to me at the end of the game and I, he just came into the locker, so I changed the room, it was like set back. And he walked in and, and it was like this meeting. Now John O's, what I liked about most, a lot of the coaches I worked with, the way I really got onwards, was they saw the person before the player. And John O was a was a, a a people man. He wasn't a coach. He'd tell you how to play rugby and he'd skill you up, but he'd get to know who you was, what made you tick, on and off the field. And it was like this meeting of eyes. And there was this moment where it was like the door opened slightly, and for some unknown reason. Either I'd come to the end of my tether or I trusted Jono enough. There was a meeting of eyes where I just realised that this could be a moment where I kind of actually tell someone. And when he asked me if I was okay and I told him no and we went and we had a chat and he just said to me, look, he said, these boys love you and you cannot continue to be in this environment under this pressure living your life the way you are, like living this massive lie and hiding it from people. Because you were a leader as you. well. <laughs> What's that? You were a leader as well at this yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, I was captain of, <laughs> captain of Wales, like, you know? And, and, and that, like, three, I was captain, when you captain Wales, it's the national sport, you captain 3.1 million people, let me tell you. Like, everyone has an opinion on, on how you should captain, whether you should kick, whether you should kick for touch, whether you win the toss, 
what you decide to do. Like everybody has an opinion and the easiest way to be accepted is just go with the majority. Like just say, right, okay, what would the majority of 3.1 million people do? It'll be all right if I do that. Um, so when I told John, and he told me he'd have to tell the other guys, part of me was relieved because sometimes when you live like a, a lie, sometimes it's better to give the lie to someone else because then the pressure is taken off you. Even though you want to tell people because you know you've got to get the pressure off, you can't come to tell them. So when somebody else takes it for you, as much as that's a relief, it's also, it's also this kind of, it's this intrusiveness of thinking, hang on now, I've kept this. This, is, this has been like, this has been something I've hid for 20 odd years and all of a sudden I'm entrusting someone else with it. Oh my God. And he, and he said that he would tell two of the guys, Nugget, Steve, Martin Williams one, and Stephen Jones the other, who were, like me and Nugget, we, me and Nugget have roomed together for our whole career. So this is a man now who I've probably lied to more than anyone in the team. Um, and Stephen Jones, who was an integral figure. And he went and told them, and I remember I was sitting in a bar, and um, I, it must be like about 15, 20 minutes, but it felt like three hours, and I, I don't smoke, I didn't smoke. And I remember I was like, puffed about like 40 fags waiting, I was sitting in the bar smoking, drinking, because I just did, you know, I didn't know what else to do. I had nothing, I didn't know the pressure. And then the boys walked back in and I was ready for this, this like huge moment. Cause you know, you build something up for 25 years, mate. It, it doesn't, you know, it's going to be a bang. There's going to be an explosion of something. And it was like a wet fart. Literally I walked in and that guy tapped me on the back and there was a case of, mate, it's fine, don't worry about it. And it was like, it was, it was one of the biggest anticlimax of my life. But two, the greatest way of acceptance because I didn't want to be celebrated and I didn't want to be kicked in the teeth either. I just wanted to be normal because as much as there was times when I felt not normal, I'd learned that, you know, I was normal. They weren't so, angry. Yeah. Did you expect them to be? No, I expected, and especially Nugget, because, you know, you say we've roomed together for like, the best part, like 15 years. And, and when you room with people, you know, they, I had teammates, but when you room with someone, you know, you get to know their wife, you get to know their children, they talk about their life. Um, so you really, really know them. And everything I had said to Nugget, as true as it all was, was based fundamentally on, on the percentage of a lie. And I think that was a big fear of mine, was that people were going to not like me for lying to them for so long, for not entrusting them to be okay with something. But they got it, like, they, they, they got it. They were like, look, mate, we know why, but can we just move on? Because we don't want you to change. We'll protect you and we look after you, but we won't change towards you, so don't you dare change towards us. So it was, you know, it was a really, it was a really powerful, a pow uh, let's say, I'd say a powerful wet fart. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know another fear I'd say people have, especially elite sports people, would be does it, you go into a, a cauldron of 50,000 people every weekend and if there's a ta any way they can abuse you, they can. Yeah. But w w will you talk about how that, that could become a reality? But also, can you contrast that with what the Too Late to Lose crowd did to you that yeah. day when you, yeah. when all the other Cardiff boys were getting booed and 
Yeah, yeah. And Explain it, like what happened at that time. Yeah, because I think, you know, as a sportsman as well, especially a professional sportsman, um, you're kind of a sitting target, you know, and when there's 50,000 people that can create a hostile environment, then you go into it, okay, prepared, because you're with your team, and a hostile environment is targeted at your team, but when you give people dif- a point of difference, then all of a sudden 50,000 people targeting a boosted you for 80 minutes makes your experience of being a professional athlete horrible. Like, you know, there's, nobody should be allowed to go into work. Imagine going into work every week or every other week and everyone in the office just spent all day chanting at you, you know, being homophobic or calling you negative things. Then your work environment, you're not going to be able to be any good at it. And also, you shouldn't have to put up with it. It'll be horrible. And so the day that I publicly chose to come out, there was a huge fear of mine that I had about being out in France, out in Toulouse, and not really being judged for, for my sexuality because I didn't think that that many people would know because I didn't think it was going to be a big, big deal. Like, I didn't think it'd be a big enough story because, you know, the events with the boys and the events with my family, it all kind of, it, it, it arose and then it kind of, had moments where it just disappeared and we just got on as normal. So I thought it'd be, you know, it'd be a story, but it wouldn't be this big story that would travel to France. And when we were out in, in Toulouse and we were on the field and I kind of built up this moment because, um, like, you do constantly feel like you're in a team when you're with rugby, but there's kind of a moment that a lot of people listen out for because it's the moment where they judge you and that's on the team announcement when there's your name and then there's a couple of seconds in between each one and there's a couple of seconds of silence where the crowd give their opinion. And that was where I felt, you know, I had to listen to it because I felt this way the judgment of what I've said is going to be given. And um, I remember it because they read through the Blues team and Lee Alfred was full back and everyone booed and jeered. Then Tom James was on the wing and everyone booed and jeered and then they read my name and everyone cheered, literally, probably as loud if not louder than they did for me as they did for any of the Toulouse players. Um, and I remember it because it, like, it, was, it, was it was this moment where you always dread because you feel alone, but for that moment when I was there, I genuinely felt, I felt accepted for honesty. It wasn't like acceptance for me. It wasn't acceptance for my sexuality because I'm not sure people really cared. There was, it was an acceptance of honesty. And I think like, you know what, mate, whatever, whatever the history is or however well you play, however good you are, we're just going to applaud you for your honesty and what you've said today because it'll make a difference. Um, Makes you wonder what all the fuss was about. Nearly, it, 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 generally, but then, you know, I've had, I've had, since then as well, I had, I had, you know, I had, I had negatives happen. So I've been, in, I've been in games where I've been like ch- chanted at for like 80 minutes, totally abused. And then positives come of it because people within the crowd ain't, ain't willing to listen. They'll take pictures, they'll video record, they'll report people. Clubs got fined, fans got banned from grounds. Um, and yeah, you, you do, you, you realise, you realise, you know, what, what was all the fuss about, but I know what all the fuss was about because, you know, I, I started playing professional rugby in 1995 and, you know, this, this all happened 
many years later and times kind of changed pretty quickly but also there were still some environments and some people who were willing to pay their admission fee and judge you on sexuality not judge you on ability or lack of ability but they're gonna they're gonna call you out on your sexuality and I you know I experienced not often did I experience it but enough to make me aware that it's it's still there still relevant even on a bigger picture when we're talking about sport like we're going to have a football world cup soon where it's legal to be a homosexual yeah of like, course yeah that, that's going to happen yeah like, i know mate. it's uh, insane like, it's, it's, well, it's, it's it's worse than insane you know and you look at russia where the last um world cup was in and again this you know this sem- I, I, 70 i think it's 70 now countries in the world where it's still illegal to be gay or to um, have a gay relationship. So, you know, these are, are big countries, influential countries, rich countries that put a lot of money, that have a lot of power, that have a lot of say, not just in the world in general, but in the sporting world. So, um, you can easily, and I can, get trapped in my bubble and think everything's okay. Live in Dublin, it's a big city, it's a diverse city. I look around me, why do I need to fight for it? You know, there's um, there's people of all religion, all races, all gender walking on the streets. Everything's fine. What's the matter? It's, but it's not because you go to another country or you go to a suburb of D- Dublin. You go further out in the countryside of Ireland or of Wales, and things ain't okay. It's not all right. So, you know, as much as as much as your bubble might tell you it is, step outside of that, and the reality is completely different. Would you? You can't answer this, but w- would you do it different in your career if you could go back with? who you are or anything like that? Would you change anything up? Um, you know what, I'd love, I'd love to say yes, right? I'd love to say yes, but again, there was times, um, there was times in my career that were, were highlighted to me that for me to be able to be myself, um, I would have been faced with rejection and faced with 80 minutes every week of abuse and that was a reality, so I wouldn't. And also, I think what I battled with and at times when I wanted to die, um, to now sit here and love being alive, I probably appreciate life because of their moments more than I would if I hadn't had their moments. So even though they're horrible moments for me, I carry them with me because they very much define the way I live my life now. I, you know, I care about my life, whereas I used to not care, but I only care because I know what it's like not to care. I don't aimlessly walk around um, feeling like I have the right to do anything. I feel like I have to fight for the right for myself to do something or for the right for others to do something. So as much as, as, much as there are things in my life that I would love to change, I never would because then I wouldn't be the person that walks around today trying to create better environments for people. I, w- I want to touch on, I, d- I don't want to, the Falao and um, Vonopolis, I, I think you've dealt with it quite a lot in, in yeah. the media, but uh, are you religious? Uh, do you know what? People always say kind of am I religious. So um, I had myself christened when I was 19 um, because, and again, what this reason is, who knows? And I go to church quite a lot and I'll go and pray in church quite a lot. Because there comes a time when you can't tell anyone anything. Right? You are literally on your own. 
You have nobody to answer any questions that you got. Sometimes the only way to get an answer is to, is to feel like somebody can actually hear what you're saying. And then it becomes something spiritual because you feel, am I sorting my answers out for myself? Or is somebody actually giving me these answers? Because I can't even think straight, let alone figure out an answer. So I did go through a time where I felt like the only person I could talk to was God, because I couldn't tell anyone this. So I found, and I still find, that by going to church, first of all, I can find a calm, I find a massive calmness, but also I find the one thing, and this is why I suppose it disappoints me with the Falao and the Vili Polo columns, the one thing I find in a place where there's love. And what I've learned from my time of, of getting christened and my time of going to church is that within church, the one thing that they teach is to love each other and to love yourself. Um, and that's why it helped me because I was able to finally kind of love myself and somebody tell me that it's okay. So, you know, when you talk about Falau and the religion, the one thing religion tells me is to preach love. And that isn't what Falau or Vinipolo, to me, were preaching. Is that a good reason to uh, have, did they give uh, lots of kids a good reason to stay silent? Or has the reaction to what the two lads have said and, and preached uh, been so powerful that it, which way do you think it's gone? By the well, way? do you know what? I'd rather it never been out there in the first place. Therefore, children wouldn't hear the positive side of it, and they, but more importantly, they wouldn't hear the negative side of it. Um, because that conversation can only be brought up, or that subject can be brought up if you first start with a negative comment, and then we can look at all the positive. But somewhere within that story, the negative comment has to be told. Um, so what, what saddens me is that... Um, if people, you know, in a, in a school playground or in, in a, you know, in a suburb of Dublin or in the valleys of Wales who are, who are struggling or feel like they want to have an excuse to be able to throw an opinion at somebody, that's been clarified because somebody who they look up to has been able to justify it and say it, um, then it's kind of too late because that subject is out there and people will use it, I think. You know, what I saw as an adult was a, a great sense of wave of support from the rugby community, um, from the LGBT community, and from society in general. And I think that's the reality, is that there are voices who are willing to react. But my fear, or what I, what I kind of wish there was more of, is people who are willing to be more proactive. We're a great reactive society, and we react to negativity really, really well. But sadly, there's times where we walk around in our bubble and we're not willing to be proactive. Um, so the reaction was great. I just hope it kicks people into being more proactive. Two quick questions and I'll leave you alone. Yeah. Where are you going to be for Pride? Um, so what I, do you know what I usually do? So, as in Dublin Pride, you mean? Yeah. Or any Pride? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the weird thing is, and this, this, this sounds bonkers but I never really celebrate pride right because my idea and this is my truthful answer my idea of my pride this sounds pathetic is enough right 
is I live my pride every single fucking day. Like I walk around being myself. I wave a flag if I have to. I carry a banner with me if I have to. Enough people know my identity that I feel that as long as I stay true to myself, as long as I'm positive in what I do, then I live, I live my pride every day and I'm as proud to do it today as I am on any pride weekend. So that's kind of in the naffest form of the sense of the answer. That's exactly what I do about pride. Okay, the, the, the journal, sports journalist in me will never forgive myself if I don't ask you about how the hell you think the Wales are going to go in the World Cup. Yeah. And uh, because the evidence of Paddy's weekend in Cardiff, uh, you have come from nowhere and you're a World Cup team, he's always been one. And, yeah. Uh, can you win the World Cup? Can Ireland win the World Cup? What Maybe do you think no, is going to happen? This year, right, if, if, if there's any year that Wales will win the World Cup, it'll be this year. I feel out there's two factors going from one of the factor that they're playing really well they have a huge amount of confidence they're on the back of like an amazing streak of runs they've got individuals who are playing at the top of the game collectively they're playing really well as well but also and quite surprisingly and in a good way for Wales people will say yeah do you know what potentially they could win but they're not like they're not touted as being like you know rock hard favourites they're there or thereabouts and we don't we can't deal with favourites in Wales you know, I think Who are you know, talking it's, a Celtic, to? <laughs> it's a Celtic thing. Um, so I think they can they can go under the radar. The longer they're under the radar, then the better chance they'll 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 have of winning. And um, I think as far as Ireland goes, well, it was every it was the biggest anticlimax. It was it was a bigger anticlimax of me coming out to Nugget, seeing the way Ireland performed against Wales because I was genuinely everyone was on edge thinking this is going to be like such a tough battle it's going to be the, the game of the year and like Ireland just did not did not show up so um, I'm sure they'll go away and regroup any team that can beat New Zealand twice in the last couple of years is, 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 is a decent enough team um, but the trouble with Ireland is I think that people do write them in as one of the favourites and that's difficult for them to cope with.